Well, good morning. Um, I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here at Faith Church. It's my privilege to uh, bring God's Word to us this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 22. And we're going to pick up where uh, Pastor Mike left off last week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I think we have some in the back. And I just want to encourage you to uh, be following along in the adventure. Uh, It's really quite an adventure in Paul's life that we're going to get to see continue on this morning. So if you were with us last week, we were left with a bit of a cliffhanger, and we'll, we'll leave today again with another cliffhanger uh, in Paul's life. Uh, last week, Paul had uh, the privilege of sharing his testimony with his own people, uh, with the Jews, and uh, things didn't go exactly as probably he had hoped. Uh, as he was sharing with his people about the hope that he had in Christ and about how he had come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, one of the things that he said to them was that he was uh, not being well received by them and he was going to go take the word of God to the Gentiles. And when he said that, he was nearly torn apart by these people. They were really upset with him. And the Romans themselves grabbed him and uh, threw him into jail and they were about to flog him until he reminded them that he was a Roman citizen. So now on the next day, and this is where we begin our uh, journey today, uh, at the beginning of chapter 23, Paul is sort of released by the Romans. And it's not really a release because they were certainly watching him uh, carefully to figure out what to do with him. Uh, And they went back before the Sanhedrin. And uh, the Sanhedrin, by the way, I don't know if you know what this was. It was kind of a council of uh, Jewish leaders, uh, a mixture of the uh, different flavors like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And each of the cities uh, in the ancient world had a, that, that, that had a Jewish presence had a, had a, a Sanhedrin. And uh, it was an assembly anywhere from 23 to 71 Jewish men. And those numbers are unusual, but they had to do with voting and... Uh, and whatnot, and, and really their, their purpose was intended to be uh, religious matters and matters of the law, of the Word of God. Now, we certainly saw when Jesus Christ was crucified that this, the uh, Sanhedrin often over, overstated and overreached their authority and the things that they were trying to get involved with, and that's going to happen again today. So we start in verse 1 in chapter 23. And we see this crazy scene unfold. It sort of reminds me of one of those Three Stooges movies. You know, everything is happening and and the interaction with the people there uh, is almost hard to follow. And Paul stands up and and says something that I thought was rather innocuous here in verse 1 of chapter 23. He says, My brothers, I have filled my duty to God. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, for whatever reason, this just infuriates them. And the high priest tells one of his toadies standing next to Paul to smack him on the mouth. And so he does. Now, that to me implies that they were predisposed to be really angry at Paul. It's a little bit like saying good morning to somebody and having them punch you for it. And uh, so Paul is upset and mad. And uh, he ignores the toady that smacked him and speaks back to the high priest in in verse 3. And he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, and yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And their response to him is, how dare you insult God's high priest? And so now we have this unbelievable response that Paul gives. And despite him being obviously angry and frustrated, Paul ends up apologizing. And he says in verse 5, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak 
evil about the ruler of your people. And this is the first of many examples in this passage where Paul just shows amazing godly character. And the example that you have right here is, is one that I think all of us could take to heart. Um, he, uh, he is just able to somehow ratchet down the, the anger and frustration and, uh, and apologize in spite of the fact that he's the one that had just gotten smacked. And then in uh, verse 6, this, uh, this story goes on, and Paul changes direction just a little bit, and for the moment kind of uh, changes the tone, and he ends up pitting these, uh, these members of the Sanhedrin against each other. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. And in verse 6, Paul says to them, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And this ends up working too well. And all of a sudden now, the Sanhedrin, is they're fighting with each other about what Paul just said. And the Pharisees end up saying, oh, hey, this, this guy's all right. You know, he's a good guy. That's right, resurrection of the dead. And the, and the Sadducees are like, away with him. He, do, he deserves to die. And they end up practically tearing him apart. They've got, I'm picturing, you know, one group grabbing one arm and another group grabbing the other arm. And he's nearly uh, torn asunder right in front of the Romans. And the Romans are, um, get a little excited about it. And they, they end up grabbing Paul and uh, pulling him back into kind of what I'd call a protective custody. They throw him back in the barracks and, and are just probably totally unaware of all these issues with the law, just wide-eyed about what in the world is going on and why this guy Paul gets these Jewish people so riled up. And so now Paul is, finds himself alone again after, after this crazy scene with all the noise and, and such, and he's all alone. And it's in that quiet moment here that, that God comes uh, to comfort Paul in verse 11. And uh, it says that the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And God gives him great courage. We're going to see why in a moment that's such an important and helpful uh, encouragement to Paul. Before we go any further, let me just take a moment and pray for the rest of our message. Lord, I just pray that as we look at the beginning of really the final journey of Paul's life, that we would be encouraged by his amazing example, by the godly character that he shows throughout all of these adventures in his life. I pray that his long-term perspective and, and just his excellent character would be encouragement for us uh, as we... Uh, cling to you on our own journeys in our lives. Help us, Lord. Remind us of where we're going and give us courage for the road that's ahead of each of us. And we thank you for the privilege of walking the road with you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, personally, I kind of I enjoy traveling. And it's a good thing because with my job, I work for the, the Air Force and we launch rockets all over the place. Um, you end up going to, to all kinds of different places. Most rocket launch pads are nowhere near Albuquerque, although there is one near Gallup, and that's a whole other story I'll have to tell you about someday. Um, but it, the, the traveling of my life really started when I was a little kid, and I, I was growing up in Iowa, and uh, every summer we would take a train trip from central Iowa to northern Colorado to visit Grandpa and Grandma. And it was the absolute highlight of every summer with me and my little brother. And we would get so excited about this train trip that we would often end up actually making ourselves sick. I remember one time I, uh, you know, 
throwing up in the train car because I was having so much fun. And then my little brother on the next summer actually threw up in the car on the way to the train station. It was just so sad. Uh, but boy, we had fun on that train. There was this car that was, had, had a dome, you know, it was a, they call it the dome car, and it had a glass ceiling, and you could kind of watch what was going on around you. And we didn't eat out very often in those days, and there was a car that you could go and have dinner at, uh, the dining car. Absolutely marvelous. And my parents had rented one of those uh, little sleeper cabins, you know. And it's pretty rare for a little kid to get to have a sleepover with mom and dad. But that was really fun. And uh, we're all kind of packed in this tiny room. And there was this magic button on the wall. It said Porter. And when you push that button, a man would come to your door and say, what can I do for you? And boy, I tell you what, we pushed that button over and over again until <laughs> my parents finally said, please ignore any, any calls from this cabin. And uh, there, were, there was good reason for why we loved that trip, because the, the destination that we were going to was Grandpa and Grandma's house, and that is really, maybe even to this day, my favorite place on earth. It was a place where my, my overprotective mother, and this was her parents, would, show, would get to this house, and she would stop parenting. It was just like a spell came over her, and she's like, Grandma's in charge. And my mom would stop paying any attention to us. And it was great. My grandpa had a... It was great. My grandpa had a shop in the basement, and he would, had a big pile of scrap wood, and he would say, go do whatever you want down there. And so we'd start building things, and, you know, up and down the stairs. Grandpa, where are your nails? Oh, they're in this drawer. Well, go, that's great. Grandpa, where's your saw? You know, go back down. Grandpa, where's your gasoline? And, uh, well, some in the lawnmower can, you know. Then the last trip up the stairs is, Grandpa, where are your matches? And uh, finally, we get a little guidance. He'd just say, whatever you're doing, do it outside. And I'd look over at my mom, and she's just like, ah, I'll get my nails done now. And, oh, it was great. So let me tell you what we were doing. You can guess. We were building all these structures that had to be reenacted in a disaster movie. And I had, I had discovered if you took Grandpa's matches and dumped it down the barrel of a BB gun and shot that BB gun at something hard, the match would come out, hit that thing, and burst into flames. And that was just awesome to, to get to do something like that. And, uh, yeah, I was an engineer even when I was little. And, uh, and Grandma also had a train in her backyard, and I mean a real live train that went through the alley of her backyard twice a day. It was delivering wood from a, from a lumber yard to a place where they manufactured homes. And we would take the remnants of whatever we had destroyed and lay it on the railroad tracks and put the little Plato men and army men on there and just watch the train annihilate all that stuff. Uh, it was truly the greatest place in the world to visit. So, okay, what does this have to do with Paul? Um, I'll just tell you this. that there, There's one thing that comes to mind, and that is that um, we're, we need to be and are often, and I trust will be, strengthened by the promise of good things ahead. And that is certainly the, the flavor of Paul's perspective on his journey. Now, his wasn't nearly as fun as mine as a young person, but um, he, he was encouraged and strengthened because of a look, looking forward and looking ahead to what was happening. And, you know, in spite of what some people thought about Paul, he did not have a death wish. You know, earlier he was with his own people saying goodbye to them and going to Jerusalem and figuring he was going to die there. Uh, but he didn't have a death wish. He had a desire to honor God with his life. And uh, 
And he, in fact, had just now, as we read a moment ago, been promised by the Lord that he was not going to die in Jerusalem. His promise was he was going to Rome to continue to preach the gospel. And so when, when this plot against his life began to unfold in chapter 23, we, we see that Paul uh, continues to be faithful to, uh, uh, to serve the Lord and, and to, to do whatever is necessary to, 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 to take the will of God in, into a reality in his life. Over, uh, starting in verse 12, there were over 40 Jews that, that, that created a plot to lure Paul back out from the Romans uh, to, in theory, talk to them about more religious matters, but in reality they were going to ambush him and kill him. Well, Paul had a nephew who heard about it, and the nephew came to Paul and told him what was happening, and Paul immediately sent his nephew to the guards that were taking care of Paul and said, tell them about what's going on. And uh, when he did, the Romans actually took it very seriously, Um, and they... I don't have a lot of good things to say about the Roman government at that time, but one thing that's true is they valued order, and they didn't enjoy the the scenes of chaos that had been going on in the city. And so when they heard about that plot, they said, well, we're getting him out of here, and we're going to take him to the governor in another city, in Caesarea, which is about 50 miles away. So, So they then, as we'll see in a moment, uh, took Paul and a, a huge entourage and got him out away from the people that were plotting against his own life. And by the way, this is another reminder, and there's so many biblical stories about this, about how God in his sovereign power is able to use evil, godless, lost people to accomplish his amazing and marvelous plans. That's exactly what he did with the Romans here. The, the Romans had totally different perspective and ideas and, and motivations for why they were doing these things, but God had it in his heart to bring Paul to Rome to continue to preach the gospel. And I love that about our God, about how he takes the most crazy circumstances of our lives and uses them to glorify his own name. So now we get to move on to read about Paul and in front of Governor Felix. And uh, this is, starts in Acts chapter 23. Uh, and in verse 23, um, so we have 470 soldiers that end up helping Paul move from Jerusalem to Caesarea. I think maybe they didn't want him killed. And uh, it's about a two-day journey, I think of around 50 miles. I Googled it on Google Maps just to see how far it was. And uh, so they took a couple days to get there, and this enormous circus rolls into town with Paul in tow and with a letter that came from uh, the commander uh, that was in Jerusalem to give to the governor. And basically it says, we don't know what to do with this guy. He's your problem now. And uh, so in, in verse uh, 35 of chapter 23, Governor Felix says that he wants to hear from his, the accusers of Paul in person. And so he sends for them, and a few days later, uh, starting in chapter 24 now, at the beginning of chapter 24, we see that Paul's uh, Jewish accusers show up in front of the governor. And now they've uh, managed to grab a lawyer, which always seems to happen in these situations. Uh, this lawyer named Tertullus uh, has joined the Jews, and he, uh, he stands up now in front of the, the governor to, uh, to share his heart about what's going on. And I want you to listen carefully, and then as you hear from Tertullus, you're going to hear a strong contrast to the way this guy talks to, uh, versus how Paul speaks to the, the governor. Uh, This is starting in verse 2 of chapter 24. 
when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. I'm going to stop there and tell you that that was just a big pile of manure that you just heard. That was absolutely not at all in any way how those people felt about Felix the governor. You know, imagine how France felt about the Nazis when they were occupied during the Second World War. That's, that's the perspective that those people had about the Roman leadership. And here he has all these flowery words about periods of peace, which there was none, and foresight and, and reforms in the nation. It was absolute nonsense. It, the, the entire at- intention of what this lawyer is saying is to to manipulate and to butter up the, the leader so that he'll be responsive to the charges that they bring against Paul. So they go on to share their case and explain to him why he's such a bad guy. Um, I'm going to jump over to verse 10 now, and I want you to contrast what, how Paul greets the governor in verse 10. Paul says, stands up to give his own defense, and here's what he says. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. That's it. That is like the lamest greeting of all time. You are governor. I'm going to defend myself now and share my, share my testimony. That's all he could think of. It's, you know, it's one of those things where if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. And he was not manipulative. He didn't give in to flattery. He didn't tell, say anything that wasn't true. And he wasn't rude. He was direct, truthful, and confident in his uh, defense. And I think that's very intentional. A number of years ago, C.S. Lewis said, never defend yourself. God is your defender. And Paul is not defending himself here. He's simply stating the truth and explaining what God has put on his heart to do. He doesn't need a bunch of nonsense to, uh, to try to manipulate another person. And then he goes on, as uh, we have heard several times in the book of Acts, to just give a clear defense of what's going on in his life and why he has spoken these things to, the, to, the people, to his own people. And he concludes his, uh, his testimony in verse 21 of, of this chapter. And he says here that it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. That's the second time this morning that he said those words. It's, that's what the, the words that he used in front of the Sanhedrin. So I'm wondering, there's, there's a theme here in Paul's words. Why does he keep going back to that? It's this resurrection of the dead. Well, I, I think there's a couple reasons. It's not just to annoy the, the, uh, the Sadducees. It's actually because that's what's on his heart, is the resurrection of the dead. Paul is concerned with the eternal destiny of the whole world, both his own people and the Gentiles. And that's what's on his heart, the resurrection of the dead. And he's also thinking about himself. He's thinking about the great encouragement that he has that he is, this life is not all there is and that he is, he is safe and secure for all eternity with his Savior. So these things are, are the driving principles that have given Paul the power and the courage to, to be the man of God that he is throughout this passage. It's his perspective on the future that guides his present attitudes and his decisions. And it's really a good thing because this, this journey of Paul is going to require a great deal of patience. That's our third 
principle here this morning, patience on this journey. He doesn't know that this is coming, but it turns out that he's going to get to spend a fair amount of time uh, with Felix here, Felix the governor here in Caesarea. Uh, In verse 22, after Felix has heard from the accusers and from Paul, he, he says, okay, well, when, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I'll decide your case. And you think, all right, that's no problem. It's a two-day journey, so this trial will pick up in a few days. And so Paul ends up waiting a bit for this to, to unfold. And uh, what we see then um, in the next few verses is that while he's waiting, Paul just ends up having conversation like he always does with the people. Now, in this case, his accusers. And he's ending up talking with Felix and with Felix's wife. Her name is Drusilla, and she's Jewish. And so, as I'm sure is his natural and normal situation, Paul brings up his faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's not proclaiming and preaching in front of a mob. He's simply uh, testifying uh, in a kind of a one-on-one or one-on-two setting here with the people that, in some sense, hold his life in their hands. And he talk, what does he talk about? And he doesn't talk about, let me go, you fool, or anything like that. He simply talks about his faith in Christ. He talks about righteousness and self-control. And again, about the judgment to come. And it uh, sounds like maybe Felix's wife is, is interested or maybe too interested in these topics. And uh, Felix ends up saying, okay, that's enough. I, that's enough of the God talk. I don't want to talk about that. He, he had another topic in mind. He wanted to talk about money. He was thinking maybe Paul would offer a bribe and we could just kind of get this over with. Just give me a little money. You'll go on your way. I'll be happy. You'll be happy. And, uh, but that is not at all where Paul's heart is, and that's certainly not, not how he responds. Now, apparently there are no laws for a speedy trial in the time of Rome because look at what happens here in verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So the the commander apparently had retired or who knows what. And so for two years, I, I perceive this give and take happening where Felix is thinking, I need some money and you just can rot for all I care unless you want to offer me a bribe. And for two years, Paul's journey has this enormous pause in it. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'd be going crazy. I I am just so not happy about delays in my life. And I'm just wondering how it is that Paul was able to make it through those two years in Caesarea. And I'm, I'm thinking that Paul, every morning, would wake up with that promise that God had ringing in his ears. Remember, uh, remember the promise from verse 11 of the last chapter? The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. He wakes up. I'm in Caesarea. I'm not in Rome. I'm not going to die today. That's good enough. Time to keep moving. And over and over again, every morning I can picture him waking up. I'm in Caesarea. I'm not in Rome. My life is safe today. We don't all get that promise, but he did. And for that season of his life, he was incredibly motivated and encouraged by the promise that God had given him, that Rome was in his future. 
And so I'm picturing him every morning thinking about the resurrection of Christ and the, the hope that we have in that. The, the resurrection of both the Jews and the Gentiles, some to, to uh, a blessed life in eternity and some, some to uh, an eternal uh, de- a destiny separate from, from our Lord and Savior. Uh, and he was compelled and continued to share the hope that he has with, in Christ, whether it was to a few people or to a lot of people. And this kind of sustained him on the journey. So that's where we end up with in today's passage, a little bit of a cliffhanger again. You'll next week get to hear more about what happens to Paul. But what I want to do now is, is switch gears a bit and think about the personal application for the things that we just uh, read about that happened to Paul. And there are a number of them uh, that I want to share with you that I hope would bring home the message in a way that might give you a few things to think about as as each of us as individuals and as a church uh, think about our own journeys moving forward. I'm going to start with this one. Seeking God's comfort and going to his word during a time of crisis. Seeking God's comfort and going to his word during a time of crisis. We saw that at the very beginning of the the story here this morning. Um, Have you ever been in a literal fight, like a fist fight with somebody? Some of the guys are going, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, The last one I had was with my little brother. It's because he learned how to dunk a basketball and he could dunk over me and made me mad and I shoved him and he punched me in the nose. And the next thing you know, we're rolling around bleeding all over each other. You know, it's in those kind of times you're extremely emotional. I'm thinking about Paul being smacked by that guy in front of the Sanhedrin. How easy is it to think about the Word of God in a moment like that? You know, it's not easy. It's really hard. And yet, just a few seconds later, Paul is apologizing to, this, to the leadership and saying, well, the, the Bible says this about what, how I ought to be per, uh, uh, conducting myself. And that requires an, an amazing amount of preparation and really having the Word of God close to your heart, doesn't it? Um, it, Being able to go to the Word and go to the Lord in the toughest, most emotional, crisis-oriented moments of our lives. But that's the, that's the challenge. That's the encouragement for us to be, able to, do, to be able to do that. Maybe it's not a fight, but it may be a battle that you have perhaps with an illness or with unemployment or with opposition or someone who you're struggling with in a relationship with, a, with illness or, or being fearful about the future. Whatever it is, the encouragement and the challenge for us is to go to the Lord and go to his word in these times of crisis. There's another overarching principle that uh, jumps out at me from this passage, and that is to, be, to begin our journeys with the end in mind. To begin with the end in mind. And my, my children are rolling their eyes about what, what I'm about to say because I say it so often. One of the things that I, the way I define maturity, at least in part, is a, a mature person is one who thinks about the future as opposed to the very moment right in front of us. Future thinking versus instantaneous thinking is one of the key uh, parameters of becoming a mature person. And Paul is clearly a man who is mature in his faith and forward thinking, future thinking. And it stands in such stark contrast to our culture right now. Our culture is infected with the obsession with the here and now and with the instant. And, you know, it's also infected the church. And there are so many examples that I could share. But I'm going to share four books that are popular among Christians right now. And these are all real titles of books. And you can buy them all on Amazon. And I encourage you not to do that. (laughs) 
All right? The first one is called God Wants You Rich. It has to do with promises of God for, for a life here and now and of wealth and success. The second one is called Your Best Life Now. All right? Uh, you might even know who wrote that book. And I haven't read any of these, so I might be out of turn, okay? But it doesn't, I don't like the titles, so that's what I'm going with here. Because the focus is here and now as opposed to the hope we have in Christ for all of eternity. God Wants You Happy. That's a, ti- that's a real book with a real title. I don't know how much it costs. And then the fourth one being Never Be Sick Again. And uh, you can imagine that some of the, uh, the Christian uh, writers these days are so focused on our experiences in the here and now that I, I wonder if we're not really, really neglecting the, the eternity, the sense of, of confidence that we can have in Christ, not only to, to help us through these things, but also to enjoy an eternity free from all these issues in our lives. Paul did not bother writing books like that. And you know what? I'll tell you this. He did write a lot of books, didn't he? And those books are going to last a whole lot longer than the nonsense that we can buy on Amazon right now. Right? Now, I'm thinking about the book of Romans, all right, that, that, uh, that bears the, the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we start in Romans 3.23 where, where he writes that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then later in Romans he says that those, the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, 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 that wa- the wages includes an eternal separation from the living God. And that Jesus Christ is the one who paid the penalty for our sins w- w- by his death on the cross. And he overcame death by his own resurrection from the dead. And he walked among his own people. And that his calling to us is to repent and to give our lives to him. It's the only hope we have for being right with God for all eternity, to receive the forgiveness that only God can give us. Those are the books that Paul wrote. That's the stuff I want. That's the hope that we have in all eternity and all of our future, regardless of what our present circumstances are. Now, I will say that often God uses what's right in front of us here and now to help us to enter into thoughts about eternity. Um, One of the most... I came to know Jesus from a, a pamphlet that, that a campus organization put out, and, and the, the first principle was that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, that's a great promise and a great truth, and it's a here and now statement. I was dealing with my own parents' divorce and was really devastated by the, the lack of anything under my feet that I could feel like I was standing on. And so God definitely does use the present circumstances to alert us to our need for him. But I want to submit this to you. Unless we embrace eternity, unless we begin to consider the future, uh, being a sold out follower of Christ, it it requires that we forsake the present world for a promise in all eternity. There's a requirement that we move beyond the here and now and begin to think of what, who we are in Christ, his children to be, to be enjoying all of eternity with him. Now, along the way to our future and our eternity, there's another principle that I I take out of this, and that is to enjoy the journey. So I'm switching gears here to the other side of this, to enjoy the journey. And I'll admit to you that most of life is not like the train ride that I took to Grandma's house. It's not always that exciting, and it's not always that fun. But Paul, in his journey, was faithful in his witnessing, is in encouragement. He was hopeful in the midst of, of all the difficulties that he was facing. 
Uh, he was enjoying the journey, and I can say that because the word is the root word of enjoy is the word joy. And Paul speaks often about uh, about having joy in the midst of difficulties, and James wrote about that as well. And I'm just going to pause here for a second and commend you as a body here at Faith Church for your faithfulness in enjoying God's presence in your life. As an elder, I get the privilege of every week seeing prayer requests and uh, praying for people uh, and sometimes following up just to talk about what God is doing in your lives. And we, each week we invite you to do that, or fill out a connection card, and put it in that box. And over and over again, I hear these stories about things that I have not yet experienced in my life, facing the fear of death, facing an illness that seems to be overwhelming, worried about a family member whose relationship seems beyond hope, beyond repair, dealing with financial challenges and difficulties that are just so hard to imagine. And yet, over and over again, as I read these prayer requests, I also read and hear hope. And I'm encouraged by the witness that you are in sharing even your biggest and most difficult trials. I see that so often. And I think this is, this is witnessing. This is the power of God to give us the opportunity to share with people that we have the hope of Christ in eternity in spite of the difficulties that we're facing. And you do well in that. And I just, I praise God for that. And, and I am often humbled by my own lack of faith when I read uh, some of the prayer requests that, that I frequently hear. So, I'm encouraged and I'm still learning about this one to enjoy the journey. Here's another one. Character matters with the gospel. Character matters with the gospel. And there are, there's uh, five different character attributes. I'm going to just share them very quickly here that I saw jump, in, jump out at me from the Apostle Paul. The first attribute being boldness and courage. Paul was fearless in sharing his faith with the Jews. He took courage from the Lord to share Christ in spite of the personal uh, price that he was going to have to pay. He also showed great humility, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the way that he responded to the, the amazing conflict that he was dealing with. And you know, that thing about uh, apologizing for something small when somebody did something bad, big to you, that's a big deal. You know what? That's, a, that's an attribute that all of us could use a little bit more of. Are you, are you having a conflict right now with your spouse or with someone in your family? I encourage you to think of something small you need to apologize for. And wait on God to let, and let him deal with the big things that they're doing wrong against you. It's a great conflict resolution strategy. It's also really good for marriage counseling. And so I encourage you to think about Paul's example in that. How about authenticity? How about the fact that Paul is who he is in, without regard to what that means for his future? He's not going to manipulate. He's not going to spread a load of garbage around in front of somebody just to get right with them. He is not fluffy. He, he is, doesn't puff up people. He is, uh, even with people who are in authority, he was always ready to share his testimony. And I think about Paul's integrity in spending two years with Governor Felix and not being willing to, to share a bribe, to give him, give him some money to get out, kind of get out of jail. And I thought, well, that's never going to come up in my life. And then it came up just recently. So uh, Teresa and I have, by the way, have been accepted as 
limited term missionary staff with Cadence International. And that doesn't mean we're moving away forever, but it does mean that, uh, Lord willing, we're going to get to serve the Lord overseas for a few, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months each year uh, in, our, in our near future. And as a part of being accepted with Cadence, they handed us a great big handbook, kind of like a manual for how things work, and here's what we do and don't do, here's what you do, and here's our responsibility. And I'm reading through this thing, and I get to about the 20th page, and it says that if you happen to get kidnapped while you're on the mission field, we won't pay your ransom. And I read that, and I went, well, how often does that come up? You know? Wow, why'd you have to say that? I mean, I know, I know you're not going to pay my ransom. You're a, you're a Christian organization. You don't have any money. I do understand that. But, but I'm like, wow, I have to deal with this. You know, if I got kidnapped, I'd be sending emails and phone calls, and I'd be asking Faith Church to put up one of those fundraising thermometers out in the parking lot, you know. Only $12,000 more, and Eric gets to come home, you know. That's what I would do. And, and, uh... Paul could have done that. He could have called on all the churches that he was ministering to and say, Raise, I need a little money here. This Felix is asking for something under the table. Not going to do that. He wasn't going to do it. And, and it encourages me to know that he um, is not going to give in to the things that he know or knows is not from God. And finally, Paul, Paul showed an enormous amount of patience uh, as a part of his, uh, his life here. He, he knew where he was going, and he was willing to wait it out. He's going to wait out the bad guys. Let them do with him whatever they want. Unlike Jonah, who, you know, as soon as he was called to, uh, to go to one place, he just got on a boat going the other direction. Paul said, nope, I'm willing to do it. I'm, I'm going to l- wait patiently for whatever the God has for me. Here I am uh, in Caesarea. That's where God wants me. That's where I'm going to be. Uh, Rome is in my future. I know that. So I'm just going to wait. And he showed an enormous amount of patience through all of that. And then finally, here's a, a takeaway from the uh, kind of the attributes and realities. Uh, this is not so much an attribute for Paul, but just a, a personal application. And maybe it's an obvious one, but travel and missions go hand in hand. Travel and missions go hand in hand. When, when Teresa and I are going to be serving the military, it's going to be in Yokosuka, Japan, which is uh, a few miles away from Tokyo. And it just seems like that's been the pattern from the beginning of time. When God wants his message to go out, he sends people out. And so maybe it's obvious, but, but this is a call to missions in this story that we read as Paul's life unfolds. Paul was excited to go back to Rome. He really was. You know, he, he was probably thinking out of obedience, I'm going to Jerusalem, that's probably the end of my life. And what do you know, in God's sovereign plan, he's spent like three days in Jerusalem, boop, off again on the, tr- on the road, back to Rome, back to where his heart was uh, to be able to preach to the Gentiles. So, like Paul, do you love people, even those far away, enough to be involved in missions? And to see the gospel spread around the world. God gives us the privilege of doing that, sometimes as those who are sent. Like, like the case that Teresa and I will have. What a privilege that is. But, you know, it's been... We, we did this once before with Cadence. It was 12 years ago. And during the last 12 years, we didn't... We weren't sent. We were senders. And what a privilege that is. There are so many ways to be involved in missions. Some of it has to do with uh, blessing others with financial support and sending them. Uh, also just being practical and uh, spiritual supporters. Uh, we, 
We pray regularly for missionaries, our missions team. We're getting together a little bit after the service here. We'll have the privilege of thinking about how we can encourage a couple of our missionaries just with... uh, not only with taking short-term trips like the team is going to do, but also just to, to pray for them and encourage them and check up on them and ask them how they're doing. God is still involved in the business of bringing the gospel to the whole world. And what a privilege that he still wants to use us to accomplish that. Will you pray with me?